Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, the news from the Titan is all bad, as we always feared it would be. But, you know, in some respects, I feel that if there was going to be a loss of life underwater in this sub, the way that it appears to have happened would be merciful for the men on board. You see, if it was stuck on the bottom or entangled with something and couldn't move and communication was lost, then the 96 hours of oxygen use would mean, well, a slow lingering horrible death of oxygen deprivation and hypothermia, one that was inevitable barring a rescue miracle. It looks like the circumstances here, though, happened at a flash. The sub was unable to stand the water pressure and imploded, so death to the five uh, would have been instant. But, you know, questions about this sub remain. It was never officially approved to go 4,000 metres down. Yes, it had been there and survived before, but do we put that down to good luck rather than good management? I think so. Either way, tourism to the wreck of the Titanic will never happen again for a long, long time, if ever. The men inside, apart from the 19-year-old, had made their money in life through being risk-takers. That's how you make money. They took a risk in going so deep. Stockton Rush, the man who ran the company, once said, quote, safety is pure waste. If you just want to be safe, just don't get out of bed, don't get in your car, don't do anything, unquote. That sort of attitude suggests this craft and this business rode its luck until the inevitable happened. Now, if you need any more proof that this government cannot be trusted to spend your money effectively and efficiently, look no further than the Auditor General's report in the last few days on the Provincial Growth Fund. Remember that slush fund? It was essentially a $3 billion pile of money that Jacinda Ardern had to hand over as the price of New Zealand first, supporting her to former government six years ago. And then Shane Jones was put in charge of the cookie jar to hand out the goodies. Then when COVID hit... The final $640 million of the PGF was repurposed into projects that could stimulate the economy. Now, the Auditor General's Office, or OAG, is a star in the New Zealand Public Service. In fact, it's the star of the New Zealand Public Service, and it did not mince words over that $640 million. It said there was no evidence of either clear reporting or of regular monitoring of how well the PGF reset was achieving its objectives, or how its overall success or value for money could be determined. Ouch. And then at the select committee, a man from the OAG said record-keeping at meetings where funding decisions were made was often non-existent. He went on to say that $640 million is a lot of money, and that there are certain standards of transparency that are expected for that amount of money. He is absolutely dead right, of course. But this government and their lackey public service just don't seem to think like that. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 
You have probably heard of PETA, P-E-T-A, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Now, they achieved success when they essentially shut down the mink fur industry by saying that mink were animals that needed to be looked after to be conserved. I doubt they would say the same about ferrets and possums, which are just awful pests, of course, but, gee, they have wonderful fur too. Anyway, PETA are now on the case against wool. Can you believe it? I mean, wool is the most sustainable and comfortable natural fibre there is, and it has the added advantage of keeping people warm as well as being stylish. But this woman from PETA was on television yesterday with some outrageous claims about sheep saying they have an impact on the environment which most people are not aware of. This woman, Emily Rice, reckoned that sheep's methane emissions were a danger to the planet because methane is 80 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. Uh, That, of course, is just absolute tosh. Methane is an insignificant part of the atmosphere, and what sheep emit as natural body gases is, frankly, just irrelevant. Anyway, she went on to say that we should wear clothes made from cotton and hemp and that they can keep you warm. Really? I mean, PETA is just one of those outfits that talk so much tosh. It's worth having them on TV just for pure entertainment value. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057 that's 2057 so get in touch with us now now the fifa reaction to the all whites protest against alleged racist abuse in the match against qatar frankly is not promising for new zealand football now for a start remember fifa and qatar are best buddies Last year's World Cup made FIFA an absolute bucket full of money, like $7.5 billion. And the big FIFA boss, Gianni Infantino, has actually moved from Zurich to Doha. So in light of that, is there any realistic chance that a black player from Qatar will be punished by FIFA for an alleged comment made to a player from that utterly insignificant football country called New Zealand? I would say... Absolutely none. I mean, FIFA are making the appropriate noises and saying how they will be analysing reports from the match, yada, yada, yada. And then, of course, there is the pushback from Qatar, who say a New Zealand player racially abused Yusef Abdurazag before the slur was thrown at the all-white Michael Boxall. All up, I would say New Zealand are not going to get any satisfaction out of this incident. FIFA proved time and time again that money matters more than anything in their world and Qatar make lots of money for FIFA and New Zealand just don't make any. Well, the ugly protest against Posey Parker in Auckland three months ago has had yet another disgraceful development. The 20-year-old man who punched a 71-year-old grandfather who was there to hear what Posey Parker had to say has been granted diversion by the police. He didn't punch her just once, but multiple times. What is this country coming to? This was a common assault, a deliberate attack on a defenceless woman who was doing nothing more than exercising her right of freedom of assembly. Now, we all know that the police were pathetic that day and did not protect those who peacefully gathered against this rabid mob of transgender activists. 
At first, the police weren't even going to try and track this thug down, the one who punched the 71-year-old grandmother. But the incident had been caught on camera. The video evidence was presented to police and reluctantly, they had to go and find him. After they did, he went to court He was granted name suppression and was accepted into the police diversion scheme. In other words, he got off scot-free, no fine, no conviction, no nothing. You just admit the offence, get on with your life and forget it ever happened. Understandably, the victim is unhappy. She went into shock after the assault, after she went back to her home in Dunedin. This is yet another example of police going soft on crime. How can a 71-year-old grandmother, a 71-year-old pensioner, not get justice for being assaulted for just being somewhere? It is just appalling. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. I see that Stuff are once again trying to play down the extraordinary increase in deaths in New Zealand last year and this year by rubbishing theories about the possibility of the COVID vaccine being involved. Not that they've talked to any medical people, mind you. The theory this report puts about is that, yes, we had a staggering 10% more deaths per thousand of population than the average for five years pre-COVID, but that this was caused by COVID itself and by an ageing population, as if we haven't had an ageing population for a couple of decades. Now, this may or may not be true, but there has been no in-depth medical analysis of why 3,442 more people died last year than in 2021, and why this year the death rate is 7.55 deaths per thousand of population compared to the pre-COVID average of 6.8. In other words, we're looking at another total death toll this year of around 38,000 New Zealanders. And when our recent long-term average is 34,000, something is not right. This stuff article, which is again trying to beat down the anti-vax campaigners, will just not countenance any possibility that the vaccine may be responsible for hundreds, if not thousands of deaths in New Zealand. We simply don't know. And we can't know because nobody is asking. I mean, heaven forbid, the vaccine status of deceased people, especially those who die under the age of 60, is not even recorded. That is the biggest scandal here. Not that this injection may be causing long-term injury and death, but that nobody in authority is even prepared to countenance the possibility. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that the long periods of school shutdowns during the COVID era would not be good for students, or as the education industry calls them these days, learners, But now the Education Review Office, the ERO, the ERO, has come up with another report confirming the real issues that have emerged and are likely to emerge in the years to come. Essentially, the ERO say that because so many students were absent from school because they were forced to stay home by the government edict, they didn't learn much in that time. And because they got pretty used to not going to school, they, well, they haven't bothered to go back once schools returned to normal. 
At least the ERO in its report has come up with some solutions. Schools and teachers, they say, should make up for the lost learning opportunities by ensuring students actually come to school, then fixing the learning gaps while at the same time accelerating the progress of those who have kept up. The ERO is also putting an onus on school boards to ensure the principal and the staff are well supported knowing full well that the country's education levels will not improve unless those in front of the kids are happy. Now, look, the ERO has done a good job with this report, but amongst education authorities and politicians, will it be listened to? That's the big question. Uh, Like me, you have probably heard some stories about high school kids identifying as animals, in particular Cats. Some of the stories even involved high schools close to where I live, as in in Invercargill. To be honest, I thought it was just a joke, what you might call an apocryphal story. But then I was listening to a British radio show last night and blow me down. They did an interview on this very subject. What's more, both the British Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition have waded in on the issue, which leads me to believe that if it's happening in the UK... There's every chance it's actually happening in this country too. Now, in this day and age where one of the most common sayings among my generation is the world has gone mad, teenagers are either taking the mickey out of this self-identification nonsense or they have serious mental health issues. Apparently in Britain, the kids or some kids have taken to answering teachers' questions in class with cat and horse noises. And teachers have been cowed into accepting this behaviour because of the trouble so many of them have got into by not being sympathetic to transgender students. Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, and Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, have both made their feelings clear. Starmer saying children identifying as cats is clearly ridiculous. Amen. Who would have thought? I really hope that this nonsense in New Zealand is just a silly rumour. But, you know, I'm not so sure. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Time to talk a little sport now. You may or may not have heard of Campbell Wright. Uh, He's lived in Wanaka, born in New Zealand, but he's lived in Wanaka with his family since he was about nine. His parents are American. In fact, his dad was one of the founders of Bay Audiology before he sold out uh, 13, 14 years ago. Anyway, Campbell Wright is a very high-quality biathlete. Uh, This is the Winter Olympic discipline of biathlon, whereby you cross-country ski, then you stop, and with your heart racing furiously, you have to shoot at a target and try and hold the gun steady. Uh, Campbell Wright went to the Winter Olympics last year as a New Zealand athlete, but now he's changing countries, and from now on, he will represent the US. He's lucky that he can do so because his parents are American, but it also means he will have a huge advantage from now on in his sporting career with the training facilities, the support staff, and the money that he'll have access to as part of the American Olympic program. It's almost a mirror image of the tennis player Cameron Norrie. 
He wasn't born here, but he played all his junior tennis here until he found the support from Tennis New Zealand couldn't take him off to the next level. His parents are British, so he jumped allegiances to Britain, had some support from them. He's never looked back, rising up to number eight in the world at one stage late last year. Now, I don't know how far Campbell Wright is going to go in the sport of biathlon because it is a discipline dominated by Europeans. But one thing's for sure, he'll do much better now because he's an American. Like with Cameron Norrie, New Zealand sports fans can still take satisfaction from his achievements because Campbell Wright is really a Kiwi. He just happens to be playing uh, for another country. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Uh, The report into the future of local government, which came out a couple of days ago, is frankly a waste of time apart from its recommendation about local authority funding. Uh, The question is, do we have too many local councils? The number of them in excess of 70, including the regional councils, suggests that we do. But where the big amalgamation has been put in place in Auckland, has it worked? Uh, I don't think so. So I frankly don't see any real advantage in some councils joining together. But what I do like in this report is the idea of better funding mechanisms for local government through the retention of GST on rates paid in the council district or city where it was paid. I'd actually go much further and retain all the GST paid for housing infrastructure and development as well in a particular council district or city. The annual increases in rates are frankly unsustainable and central government has got to find a way for GST money incurred in a council area to go back to that council area. However, otherwise this report frankly is just a load of nonsense. Why give 16-year-olds the vote? What evidence is there that they are ready to exercise that privilege? Why should local councils be recognised as Treaty of Waitangi partners? The treaty was between the Crown and Māori, not between local councils and Māori. And then to show you how out of touch this report is, it actually recommends lowering the threshold for Maori wards having a smaller population in them, like the government tried to do in Rotorua last year before that idea was thrown out because it was discriminatory and against the law. Most of this report will be consigned to the rubbish tin. And that's a very good idea because that is a good place for it. It is a Friday afternoon. Let's talk some rugby. We have the Super Rugby Final in Hamilton tomorrow night. The Chiefs and the Crusaders met on the very first day of the season back on the 24th of February. The Chiefs won that match 31-10. And now the same two teams will meet again on the last day of the season in the championship decider. Along the way, they had a match in Christchurch in late April, and the Chiefs won that one as well. So surely that makes the Chiefs the favourites for tomorrow night, doesn't it? I mean, two wins during the season, playing at home. What could go wrong? Ah, but don't you remember a similar scenario last year? The Blues were hosting the final because they were the better team in the regular season, but the Crusaders came to Auckland and pummeled them on Eden Park. I would like to think the same will happen tomorrow night, and it would complete a fitting send-off for Scott Robertson from the Crusaders. It would mean seven titles in seven years there. But I have a sneaky feeling this time 
it's going to be different. You see, in Clayton McMillan, the Chiefs have the rising star of New Zealand rugby coaching, a quiet achiever who took over on a so-called temporary basis from the high-profile but ultimately failing Warren Gatland in 2021, and he's turned the Chiefs into championship contenders. Now, look, I'm a South Islander to the back teeth, but something tells me tomorrow night is going to be a northern win. This has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on Reality Check Radio. Your comments are most welcome through inbox at realitycheck.radio or via text at 2057. Have a great weekend. I look forward to talking with you again on Monday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1 p.m. Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.